How's everybody doing? Yeah, how about those longhorns? Um, I, it was sad. Yeah, it was sad. I know it was. Everybody doing all right this morning? Yeah. Well, today uh, we are going to, for those who don't know, we are going through the book of Romans. We just started this last week. Um, and uh, th- this is kind of an interesting book because from what we know, not one specific person or personality planted this church that Paul is writing to. In fact, what we think happened is that when Peter spoke his message on the day of Pentecost, the gospel did what the gospel does without any force of our will. And a few people from the, the Rome area got gospel. The seed was planted in them. They went back to Rome and, and inside of them, again, the gospel just did what it does. And uh, these people couldn't help but begin to tell other people of this gospel. And, and out of that, a church formed. And so Paul, on the other hand, he, he is an apostle to most of the known world. He is on his way to Spain, or he is wanting to go to Spain. But what history tells us is that the church that he is from, for whatever reason, persecution or whatever, is no longer being able to fund his missionary journey. So he's looking for a funding church. And he's heard of this church in Rome. And so here's what Paul, uh, what we think Paul knows is, number one, there's this thriving church in Rome. Uh, Number two, it's so big it could probably fund this journey. But number three, they're in need of apostolic leading. Because they, they know that this gospel has taken root. They know that Jesus has done what he has done. And so what I want to go do, what Paul wants to go do, is kind of put some formation to that and say, here's what is actually happening. Here's what is going to happen. But also, here is what happened. And so where we find ourselves today is, when I say, when I say the gospel, don't, don't get all theological on me. What, what phrase comes to your mind? What is the gospel? It's the, it's the good news, right? Well, there can't be good news unless there is bad news. So you're in luck. Because today we're going to go over the bad news. Um, so if you came this morning feeling good about yourself, we're going to remedy that really quick. And if you felt bad about yourself, stay away from guns, razors, and rooftops after the sermon and, and just be here next week and we'll be, we'll be all right. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll start to read this. Father, we thank you. Uh, <laughs> we thank you that you have saved us from what we're getting ready to find out today. We thank you that, um, you looked down on us and, and uh, knew that we could not do this of ourselves. We thank you and what we ask you to reveal to us today how much we truly depend on you. Um, how much that our salvation, our sanctification is, is all your work. Um, and fill our hearts today with, with gratitude and thankfulness for what you have done. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. I'm just going to read through. And then uh, since, so let me, here, let me just give you the main point. So in case you fall asleep or get mad, this is, this is the deal. Okay. God creates a perfect world. We mess it up. God responds with wrath. And humanity is damned. Let's go eat. Uh, that's, that's, that is the point today. There, there's no application that's it. 
left with the text today, humanity is damned. We, we are lost. So, on that note, let's read the text. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Really? That makes me think Paul was a father. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. I mean, have you thought that just kind of fits in there weird anyway? Uh, Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So, here's the bad news. God creates this perfect order. I believe this, this, this is in your notes. And in this perfect order, he created it to function in such a way that he would get absolute glory and worship. And the good of humanity and creation would always be present. It doesn't take long to look around and realize those two things are not happening. And so this is the way God kind of created it. First... So he, t- so he takes, so he, he creates, and you, so you've got these different entities. You've got God, you've got man, and you've got creation, okay? And he takes these entities and he binds them together with perfect relationship. That is the bond that holds all of this together. Not gravity, not, but perfect, undefiled relationship. And the way that works is it's in your notes, I believe the first one is exaltation. It's the relationship between God and man. We we use this language a lot here at ANC. So when the incarnation or the, the exaltation is going perfect, then we have the relation of incarnation. And that is man's relationship with self, 
man's relationship with the rest of humanity, and man's relationship with creation. And so the way he created this order, this world to work, is that as long as we were in perfect, undefiled relationship with him, our relationship outward would be perfect. In other words, we would have a proper sense of self. If you look at the world today, or forget that, go to a bookstore, what is the biggest section in the bookstore? Self-help books. Why? Because we have a really messed up view of self, and we do one or two things. We exalt ourselves way too high, or we demean ourselves way too low. And that ultimately affects the way we react and act towards the rest of humanity and creation. Hence, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So we had this perfect view of ourselves. We did not exalt ourselves too high. We did not demean ourselves too low. We recognized that we were the pinnacle of God's creation, but yet we're completely dependent upon God's creation. And that allowed us, that informed us to see the rest of humanity as the image of God also. Not below us, not above us, but equal with us. So that informs the way we treat humanity, but that also informs the way we treated creation or we worked creation. And the way we worked creation was for the glory of God. But then the Bible lets us know that we decided to, what Romans says, suppress the truth. We decided to take what God had done, how God had revealed himself, and this is what it says, that in humanity, in creation, God had etched himself in such a way that all we needed to know about his glory and about him was etched into creation. And all we had to do was look around and meditate on that and we knew as as much of God as we needed to know. We didn't need a Bible. The theologians call this general revelation. That God had placed himself so perfectly in creation that as we just looked at it, our natural response was worship and obedience to who he was. And then Paul says that we suppressed the truth. That, that phrase, suppress the truth, literally, literally, the word picture is the steering of a ship. In other words, that what he had done, how God had revealed himself to humanity, was so obvious that we fought against that like a ship fighting against the waves. It actually took some very aggressive, direct, active work on our part to suppress the truth that he had revealed. So this is what it is. Humanity, in your notes, humanity rebels against God's order by suppressing the revealed truth through contempt, which leads to dishonor and takes shape in idolatry. Humanity, you and me, Rebel against God's order by suppressing the revealed truth through contempt, which leads to dishonor and takes shape in idolatry. Here's what contempt is. It is actively believing and thinking what God has done is not enough for us. The Bible actually refers, in your translations, it actually refers to this with the phrase of not giving thanks, which kind of sounds... Like God's being a big baby. I didn't say thank you, so... But the, but the idea here is that we have, in our minds and in our hearts, we have taken all credit from him. 
we have decided we don't really need him for everything. And we direct it at something else. In fact, this is how God sees contempt. If you look through, if you look through the Old Testament, I think I've, I've got cross-references on your notes. But especially in Numbers 16, God's talking to his people. And he says, I'm going to paraphrase, he says something like this. If I go do something crazy like open the ground and swallow people up or just strike a whole bunch of them dead... You don't have to go ask Moses, hey, what what did these people do? You can just assume that they had contempt in their heart. You just assume that. Because anybody who has the wrath of God being poured out on them, our assumption can be that it starts with a heart of contempt. At some point in the game, we looked up at God and shook our fist and said, you're not enough. That leads to dishonor. Dishonor is the idea of giving something only meant for one person to another. Really, the the word picture of dishonor is that of an affair. And if you look again through the Old Testament, you will see that this imagery is used quite often. Because here's what it is. It's in the picture of an affair. If I were to decide to cheat on Sarah, have an affair on her, I am not only saying I need something from somebody else, but I am actively looking at her saying what you have is not enough. And that's going to inform the way I live and act. And so I'm going to go elsewhere and get and give what only was meant for you. This is what you and I have actively done to God. We have had this contempt in our heart for him. And then we have shaken our fists at him and said, what you have and who you are is not enough. Therefore, that is going to inform the way I live and act. And I'm going to go give or I'm going to go get what only I was supposed to get and give to you to somebody else. I'm going to direct the affections that I had that were supposed to be towards you to something else. And this takes shape where it shows itself. In idolatry. Y'all ever wonder? You remember the story where David, uh, David really messes up. And he has Bathsheba's husband murdered. And then he, uh, he, you know, he has an affair with her. Do you remember his repentance prayer? What did he say? He says, God against you and you alone. That used to bug me. Because I'm like, well, kind of. But he also sinned against Bathsheba and her husband. But here's what David was saying. I looked at all that you had given me and I said, it's not enough. I looked at the wife or wives, uh, I don't know, that you had given me and I said, not enough. Ultimately, I looked at you and I said, not enough. And what David is saying, if I would have never had contempt for you, this never would have happened. I would have never had this blood on my hand. And so this contempt always leads us to idolatry. Idolatry is this. It is the inversion of the creation order. Exchanging the worship of, live, of the living God for the worship of images of creation. This is a quote from John Stott. Idolatry diminishes the glory of God. And since humans, listen to this. And since humans are made in the image of God, it follows that idolatry is also detrimental to the very essence of humanity, which means it is detrimental to society. And I fear that in the church world, we have reduced sin to this idea of a moral wrong that I do, and it affects me. But what, what 
Paul is telling us is that there is, we, we use the word uh, at the beginning that, that men fell, or that, that was the great rebellion, the word fall. You've, you've heard that, right? But I don't like that word because it kind of sounds like we, we, we tripped and it was an accident. But, he, but here's the idea, what, what, what Paul is saying, is that when we actively rebelled, we fractured the order of God. And a lot of modern theologians are using the word fracture, and here's why, because the picture it paints. You ever see a crack in a driveway? What happens if you leave it alone? Over time, that little bitty crack gets wider and larger. Right? And so what Paul is saying is that, yes, two people sinned. But in that sin, that, that, that little fracture, it began to compound on itself. And it literally created a society. It created a civilization. It created a spiritual culture that produced sinful people that continually perpetuated the sin. And we are lost in it. Paul uses these two words to describe this new order that we have created. So he's not focusing on individuals. He's focusing on the created order. So remember at the beginning, God created an order of exaltation and incarnation that was in perfect relationship. And Paul is now saying that because of the fall, we have actively created a new order. And the two words he used for that is number one, ungodliness. We have created an order of ungodliness, which creates ungodly people. Ungodliness is the active or passive action and will against God and his ways via the way we think, act, move, and speak. So what happens when this, when exaltation is broken? Well, then incarnation is broken. And the other part of that order is wickedness. And all wickedness is, when you look it up, this is, this is interesting. Your Bibles might say unrighteousness. Is Wickedness is ungodliness directed at humanity. It is acting through omission or commission against humanity, the very image bearers of God. So Paul is not just saying we are people who do ungodly or wicked acts, but we are a people who do what we are. Because we have been born under the headship of Adam and we have been born in a culture that is ruled and ordered by ungodliness and wickedness. So, what's going on here? Do you remember when Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom and he tells us to act like kingdom citizens? He tells us these two huge commands. Love God. Love your neighbor. Right? That's what it is. But what we have going on here is a subversion of that created order. We have enemy with God, an oppressor of humanity. And that is the world that we have created. So, what's God's response to that? God's response to us for subverting his order is wrath, which is shown through him. This is interesting when, with the way most of us think of wrath, which is shown through him releasing us to our own will, thus creating a trajectory that destroys society. Here's the deal. God is committed to God's own glory, and God is committed to pure justice for his image bearers which only happens under his perfect order of exaltation and incarnation. And when we shook our fists and said, we know better than you, in God's justice, that's, that's probably a better way to think of the word wrath, in his justice, he had to act justly according to his nature. And the Bible says the way his wrath was poured out was not like some Zeus lightning bolt. 
but he actually stepped back and said, fine, I'll honor your will. I love you and I respect you enough to let you do what you want to do. And the phrase that is used three times in 24, 26, and 28 is that God gave them up. In fact, this phrase, God gave them up, literally means that God turned them over or he released them to their own power or their own will. God steps back and says, fine, do what you want to do. But you will see over time what your free will will do. It is going to do this. And then he he shows us this trajectory. He mentions three times that God gave them up. And the first one basically says, if you look at the sins that are right there, is that God gave them up to the excess of natural things. In other words, if you go back and read 24 through 25, what you see is we have taken the natural things that God has given us. And we have moved them to the level of excess because we believed we could control them the way we wanted to control them. So we took something beautiful and, uh, and, and joyous like, like a drink called wine. Did you know when you refer back to that in the Old Testament, there's two or three equa- uh, uh, instances where the drinking of wine is equated to a merry heart. But we have taken that, said, no thanks, we can handle it, and we have turned that into drunkenness, which ultimately in, inhibits our personality, it, it inhibits uh, our integrity, and, and we see all over the world this thing called drunk driving, it ultimately ends to the taking of life. So we take this wonderful drink that's supposed to lead to a merry heart. And we have taken control with excess. And we go all day giving examples. How about, how, about, how about sex? God has created this beautiful union called sex that really is supposed to represent this beautiful dance between a man and a woman. And at the pinnacle of it, creation happens. Do you know if you look at God between this beautiful dance of the Trinity, guess what happened? Creation. It is the closest way a man and a woman in the image of God can create in some sort of image like him. What have we said? No, no. We've got it. And we reduce this idea of sex to an exchange. And we tell God we will do it under the way we want to do it. And we break this Jewish idea called dode, the mingling of souls. And I would dare to say, think of every humanitarian problem in the world. Take out the abuse of sex and you've cut everything by about 75%. At its root, you can keep going back and you will find that. But then he goes on. So it's not just, it's not just this... Uh, Excess of the natural things. But when you get to 26 through 28, what you find is if we live in this excess of natural things in society, it ultimately leads to a society that has an obsession for unnatural things. In other words, go back and read through that list. If those things are left to themselves, creation stops. 
We were made in the image of God who is a creator. We were made to image that God by creating. When we get to the point that we are doing the unnatural thing, we are the exact opposite of the image of God. We can no longer create. Society left in those things ceases to exist. And so what Paul is doing, he's not picking on any sins, but he's drawing a trajectory. He's saying, you're just slowly moving this way to the point, if I leave you to yourself, you will implode on yourself and you will quit existing. And then in verses 28 through 32, it says that as long as we are uh, in the excess of natural things that leads to the obsession of unnatural things, God turns us over to this idea of the depraved mind. It means our minds are dead and we can no longer make moral and ethical judgment calls. Because at the root of those judgment calls, self is esteemed, not God. Verse 32 says, and that leads us to eternal death. And what Paul is telling the church of Rome is, this is your condition. This is my condition. This is what makes sense of the world around you. Isaiah actually sums this up, or Paul explains Isaiah, one of the two. In 64, verse 7, here's what he says. He says, there is no one who calls upon your name. So anybody who is saved, who has called upon the name of God, this is what Isaiah is saying about them. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Dead men can't do that. For you have hidden your face from us, and, from, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Those who are saved are not saved because they thought it was a great idea. Because we have imploded on ourselves. We have destroyed our minds. We can't even look at creation anymore and see God. Because we are dead. We're getting ready to take communion, um, which, which kind of seems weird after a message like this. But, but here's the deal. I think this is the best time to take communion because it takes us to the point that allows us to realize the only way this condition does not damn us is because of the cross. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, and I'll close with this. He basically re-explains everything I just explained. And then he says my favorite line in the Bible. But. Yes, you are damned, but. Yes, it's your fault, but. Yes, my fairness would send you to hell, but. But, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It was by grace you have been saved.